and welcome to a Movie of the Year, the only podcast on the internet with the science and the screaming to determine what is the single greatest movie of any given year. And this is another bonus episode, one that you don't even have to pay for. My name is Ryan, and I will be your host for this evening's show. And tonight is a little film I like to call, and most people like to call, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Or if you have an accent, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Like I said, my name is Ryan. With me, as almost always, is Greg. Almost always, Ryan. So glad to be on this free show. Free for the people. For 75, I think you've missed a horror movie and Solo. Those are the ones that you yes, opted out Yes, but I on. did watch Shallow Hal to make up for it. <laughs> and did it? No, it was horrifying. So maybe, yeah. yeah, I guess so, yeah. And also, our returning champ, it's Van. Hi, good to be back. Sweet. Uh, now, let's start with the movie really quick. I don't know what else we would start with. Uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock. We're going to get to what it's about, but I do want to know your guys' generic feelings on it. First of all, had you guys heard of this movie before we were assigned this movie by the board? Absolutely not. I had. I can remember. Okay, Ryan, help me out here. So this is the 75 version, but was there a remake in like the 90s? There was a remake a couple years ago. The the the, uh, the Amazon show? Yeah, where uh, Natalie Dormer from Game of Thrones played the really? school marm yeah. and not... Not one of the students, which I was surprised <laughs> to find out. Um, so I, I guess I heard about Picnic at Hanging Rock. Like I think I heard about it on Siskel and Ebert, but obviously they must have just been talking about movies that they liked from back in the day because I was not alive in 75, as we've established. Um, but oh, I was always really? intrigued. Yeah. No, Van, I can assure you I was not. It was. It's s- important to note we were not alive in 1975. Just I'll barely. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> you should tell your face um but i have i've heard i had heard of the movie and i was intrigued by it because it was like it's mysterious and you know people go missing um and so i was always intrigued by it and then when we were doing 75 i got really into the idea of watching it and so i watched it sort of before the season started okay and what are van we'll start with you what are our initial reactions before we dive in it's like a painting the cinematography and the scene dressing it's a beautiful movie it looks like a renaissance painting it looks like an old-timey like the entire the entire film from beginning to end is put together like i can't stop saying enough a painting it's really pretty which this is our second movie of the season like that we also did barry linden which is i think more forcefully a painting this is I would say if you took a painting, but also added the word dream, Greg. I would agree. Yeah, like real soft focus, like real hazy lighting. They literally put a bridal veil over the camera for a lot of it. I love it. Is that how they got that effect? (laughs) For a lot of it, yeah. (laughs) It's so weird. Um, It's so disquieting. It uh, really defies um, sort of like any genre uh necessarily one versus a- another uh you're left with way more questions than answers it's very provoking it's a it's a super provoking very interesting movie and i think by not providing a ton of answers um it doesn't foreclose any meanings and so then it it it, it feels like a very rich text because so many things within it are possible um because it's not constrained by telling you exactly what happened you don't know what happened and it's kind of a movie very much dealing with like what is how do we feel about not knowing what happened like can we um experience the unknown and really abide it there's that but there's also like when you tell me what you think like when we all tell each other what we think happened or what the movie's about like we get to judge each other Uh you know like what was your first reaction and that sort of tells you a lot about who you are um, I would like this felt like an art house film, but I would say that I enjoyed it a lot more over the last couple of days than I did while watching it. Was this a tough get through? Not for me. Uh, I really liked how weird and out there it was. Every time it like just cut to an ominous, uh, like shot of the rock with like a with like a weird warbling sound, I was just like, yes, awesome. That that, that rock is scary and weird. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, and then watching like people do the the searching and kind of be really bad at it. Like mm-hmm. as much as people were dedicated to finding these girls for a while, they kind of did a half-assed job. Like 
like go like halfway down the cave and just be like hello uh, and then just like walk away, like eh, now nah, they're probably not in there. Um, yeah. Did you guys think that they had such a problem with the girls not coming back because in Australia, like that's what things do. Things like, always come back. Them, they come back to you, and the girls <laughs> never came back to them. So, well, I thought it was. Man, were you sorry? Go ahead. I thought it was a really easy watch because I lost track of time. I think from the get go, they make it very clear that time is a very relative sense in this movie. It doesn't have very strong groundings. Did your watch stop? Uh, yes, yes, it did. Right at noon, actually. Right at <laughs> noon. That's cr- now that's creepy. Yeah. Do you guys think it was weird that they showed a UFO floating above everyone the entire time? <laughs> okay, that's not true. What is true is the first question which is coming up after this break hey guys thank you so much for listening so far and let me just tell you that everything ahead of this commercial is much better than what came before it that's my guarantee while i have you here let me tell you about a website it's called yourpopfilter.com and it's everything you need that's related to pop filter everything mike everything ryan everything greg everything cassie everything is there at yourpopfilter.com while you're there, go to yourpopfilter.com slash Amazon. Make that your new Amazon bookmark and do your shopping from there. That way, we get a little piece of the action and Amazon doesn't. Make sure you're also listening to everything that Pop Filter has to offer, which includes the Superhero Show Show, a podcast that covers every single TV show that's based on a comic book or comic book property, and Movie of the Year where we sit down and try and figure out what is the single greatest movie of any given year. That's Superhero Show Show, that's Movie of the Year, and that's YourPopFilter.com. Rate, subscribe, review, bye! After making his first movie in 1974, a horror movie about killer killer cars called The Cars Who Ate Paris, Peter Weir elevated his game a bit by adapting the 1967 novel Picnic at Hanging Rock by Joan Lindsay. Adapting the version without the infamous 18th chapter, the movie tells the story of a group of Australian schoolgirls who go on an outing to an infamous rock in the year 1900, which sounds like it's in the future, but it was actually a long time ago. (laughs) A group of girls ventures off on their own, but then something happens. Three of the girls and one of the teachers go missing. This causes the school and the community to have an absolute meltdown. Eventually, one of the girls is found, but that does little to bring normalcy back to the school. After a small reaction in 75, the movie has gone on to become something of a classic and kickstarted the Australian New Wave, which featured such filmmakers as George Miller, Gillian Armstrong, and Bruce Beresford, and lasted until Crocodile Dundee made us remember <laughs> that it's actually a big, annoying island full of criminals. <laughs> Taste buds, let's start with one of the reasons this movie stands out as the most anomalous movies of the entire 1975 season. It features women. Picnic at Hanging Rock might have the least amount of nudity in film history, but is what's naked important? What is Weir doing with the sexuality or lack thereof of these young women and their mentors? So my first thought, lesbians, frankly, (laughs) Uh, there's a lot of undertone. There's some very intense undertones, actually, of sexuality in this film. And you see this within the older women as well as the young college students, um, the students of the college there, although they do seem very, very young. I, that is that is my one thought there. There's something about repressed feminine sexuality, the need to break free, sort of, with them just going off in the distance. They truly do not give an answer for what happens with these girls. They just exit. They, they break free, they leave, they disappear, they become invisible, however you want to take it. I feel like there's some kind of metaphor you can draw between them leaving and their, like, some, like, the undertones of sexuality within this film. I mean, we could start off with, and again, there are no answers, so we're just going to play around with this kind of stuff, but some sort of puberty or orgasm or falling in love with each other that then now we, ha- we no longer have t- uh, need for the school. So, bye bye You know, we have now exploded, much like the volcano they constantly reference, and we're out. We're not going to be shut down by this school anymore. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, they, they, they go somewhere. Where do young women go you know that like we sort of see uh so many i'm gonna i'm gonna clip that off <laughs> that's gonna be a of just greg's asking where do young women but you go? know like i mean that the, those those versions of ourselves disappear in the same way that like that these young women disappear right like they um are so young and naive at the beginning of the movie and that's not going to be a state that persists very long 
in their life, you know, and they live in this very insular world of other young women their age and they like play at romance and celebrate romance. And I think in that, in that milieu, there's also like honest homoerotic and, and lesbian love, but there's also just like the, the, the playing at love and the, you know, this is what it would be like to, to get Valentine's from somebody. And, and this is what it's like to dream of love. But there is then also like a reality to maturation. There is like a reality to becoming an adult and you go beyond the veil, you disappear and you can't really transmit back to those girls who you've left behind what has transpired and what and what has changed in you and where you've gone. So I think that like the sort of thematic connection that you can make towards just like sexual maturity or entering the, the sexual world or learning the secrets of the adult world that I think is way more important than like coming up with some like, okay, a portal opens up and they go through it. And I've read the book and I've read the, I've read the last chapter of what, of what happens. And you still come away from reading the last chapter that details exactly what happens. You still come away from it being like, but wait, what happened? Like, why yeah. did- so what is that last chapter? It's, it's like you get to the very end of the book and then it's like, uh, okay. So what happened was they were going up the rock and a portal opened up in space and you literally meant portal yeah yeah and like um like like uh mrs mcgraw comes miss mcgraw comes running up and she like throws off her bustle she throws off her corset and it floats in the air it just like hovers for a while and then she starts saying all this stuff about the universe stuff that's like similar to what the girls say earlier in the movie Mm -hmm. and then she turns into a crab uh, she literally turns into a crab and then she goes like she scuttles through the 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 hole and then Miranda goes and two of the others go but then one of them Marion the one that comes back Irma she gets like she gets shot out and she can't get back in and that's why her hands are all beat up because she's like clawing at the the thing like it, and so but you might still have the question like why did that portal open up why did miss mccraw what does that portal turn into a, into a crap yeah, like so it doesn't it, really it's like answers in all the wrong yeah. ways but none of the right ways the satisfying ways the one thing that i i didn't read the book over the chapter but i read about it which is basically the yeah. same thing yeah. and what i she was she had this chapter ripped out of the book by the editor before it got published um and then liked the book more she believed it when people said it's actually a lot better and then but like later on she was like well i wrote it though so people should still read it and then released it one of the things that i do like about it that i think speaks to this is how the portal is described is that it's very much not a whole you know and i think this speaks to the the feminine aspects of it is that it's it's not although it's a like you can go into it it's not the absence of something you know like it's not uh it's the whole is in itself a thing as well you know and I think so so often these movies, basically not just 75, but everything before 75, uh, if you're a woman, it's the absence of something, you know, like you have the, it's you, you, you have this, you're less than a normal person. And the movie seems to keep that point from the final chapter of, although it's a whole, it's not, it's, it's, it's actual own different thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the film... I, I, well, I think the author uh, was wise in ripping out that last chapter, and because I, I particularly like the image of the cliffs, and, and we know that Mal- these y- Sarah winds up dead at the bottom of the cliffs, having presumed that she she jumped off, committed suicide somehow there, and again returning back to the ominous cliffs. Just there, that's sort of representative of a hole, but it's not a hole. It's cliffs. It's it's so many different things. It's caverns and caves on the inside, or possible danger on the outside. It's it's so much more than just like. A cliff. Yeah, and you know, I it, it's 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 kind of like the yeah, like a synthesis of the masculine and the feminine together because it is shot, especially in the movie, it's shot in like a, a very uh I would say like masculine way. Uh but at the same time, as you said, Van, it's like all crevices and interior spaces as well. And I, I think that it like that's one of the levels in which the movie is playing with gender, is that hanging rock is kind of both things at the same time. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed the camera work there actually when you know, you've got the people rescuing or coming upon um, these bodies in the caverns and you get this high up like down angle as if you're in like looking down upon a scene just like the girls were looking down as like ants within a colony that didn't know they were in a colony mm -hmm. that sort of metaphor that they were playing on earlier. So I really enjoyed the camera work of this um, this film. So we talked a lot about how this does represent all people, you know, hitting that adult age. But I want to bring the specifically the Victorian aspect to it. Um, these girls, my favorite line of the movie is you're going up the hill without your shoes. And she screams because it's just the biggest deal just to have bare feet. Um, how, what is Peter we are doing with making sure that we focus on this time period, these clothes, this type of school? Well, I think when you like the sort of uh, absurdity of when you get through town, you can take off your gloves and the girls are like, yes, like as soon as they get through town, they're like, boom, going to bust these gloves off. Um, the absolute like constant need to be like swaddled and covered every inch to be protected from like not just the poisonous ants and lizards but just like even the look of men and when they go through town honestly young boys run alongside the the like coach and men they're so exotic and men whistle at them uh and then when they're by hanging rock albert actually whistles at the girls again um so like i i think the just the sort of like ultimate fixation of their on their purity to the fact, to the point that, like, when the girls go missing for a little bit, a doctor has to check to see if, like, they've had sexual, if they've had any sort of sexual, sexual interaction with somebody. So that means that if you just go missing, then a doctor is going to, like, inspect you in that way. So nothing did happen to you until this weird, creepy older man, like, checked to make sure that nothing had happened to you. And I think that that sort of, like, fixation on their purity is, like very emblematic of you know the victorian era era and era and the way in which it like forced the kind of like sexual trauma on people that it was like meant to maybe be protecting them from and yeah it was like it's like nothing did happen to me until just yeah. now when the doctor came home and then and then everybody talked about it you know the doctor was yeah. like don't worry i inspected her and like that's it seems like that's a, a huge violation yeah, you don't see a lot of middle ground here. You see either like the beautiful, picturesque like idea of a girl and then her dead on the ground too. You get to see like one side or the other. There's absolutely no middle ground to walk there. The other thing too about the clothes is that it's almost... I know it's traditional and it was a tradition that I hope was dying at this point, but there's a sort of like binding to it. You know, like we're going to keep you from growing, you know, by putting you in all these tight clothes you don't get to make any decisions for yourself and also is this even a school like i know it says that out front but are they learning stuff that is actually important at the school i mean i'm just remembering when sarah was tied up in a posture corrector <laughs> which looked uh, ominous to say the least kind of imagine like hannibal lecter being strapped to his chair as he's being wheeled out so that was where i i had sort of the idea that hmm, this is more of an abusive finishing school some someplace they send women who don't exactly fit in or need training or fixing up or something like that because it looks it it, it looks like a dungeon in, in, a in finishing yeah that scene is great because we don't even know she's there for like yeah. the first half of the scene and then she's like hello <laughs> uh but yeah it's a place that Dads send daughters when they start to get nervous about them. So you take care of them. I don't care what sort of abuse happens. It's like a holding pen. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I don't know how much... I know there's a French teacher, but I don't know how much like collegiate academic work they're doing. It seems just like, here's how we get you from father to husband. Yeah, they're supposed to learn manners. I think they mentioned math. Yeah, rudimentary math. So I guess some geology that the... Oh, they love rocks, don't they? They they're into rocks, but yeah, it, it, that I think is way less important than that. You went to a school like this, and then you have it like on your transcripts. That is the movie sexy. We're gonna get to genre next, but is the movie sexy? Is it anti-sexy? Is it is he using a magnifying glass, or is he trying to sort of get you to look without you knowing it? What if, we're gonna talk about weird soon, but just as far as female sexuality goes where do we put weir i don't i wouldn't put him on 
I, I don't see him being very high up on that scale there. I mean, I'm thinking of his other works as well. Um, one with Robin Williams, uh, that I'm forgetting the name of, Dead Poets Society. Uh, that was weird, um, if I remember correctly. And I just, the even in a movie that's, I, I feel like, much more charged like that, um, or the subject matter is a lot more blatant um, in terms of, yeah, they're, they're just more, they bring it to the attention, uh, they bring it uh, to the screen's attention much more. I, I don't see him as being very overtly sexual. Yeah, I mean, I, like, he doesn't foreground it really in any movie. I mean, you have to add it there, with it, whether it's like, Master and Commander, which you could do some work on your own, but it's not like Truman Show. Wit- Witness takes place in an Amish camp, and there is a sex scene, but it's Amishy. You know, like he is not. This is not a concern of his. I just, I. It seems weird that a guy would direct this movie, and I know only guys were allowed to direct movies in '75. But um, do you guys? Did he creep you out, or did it make any difference that it was a dude? I didn't. I didn't think so because it. It, it seems like it is about sex without really dealing with sex very much. Um, it's like sort of about the implications of learning about sex, but then that is like obscured because it's, it's really about hanging rock. Uh, so I, you know, it's kind of like about the subject matter without being about it. And that made it a lot less creepy because I, I think that men, male directors can really stumble when trying to like get into this headspace of like, you know, um, female lesbian love like like really like oh no i'm just gonna take my understanding of that and bring it to the screen and i think he instead like sort of just stands back and doesn't try to do that and that's such a that's a probably probably a better move like we understand it to be there without his um trying to do too much with it or we can sort of pick and choose how much we want it to be there when he's not in our face yeah yeah, I mean, like, it's this certainly is... about, like, you know, Sarah is in love with Miranda. A lot of the girls, like, have a flirtatious air with each other. Um, but obviously, there's no way to understand the story other than Sarah is heartbroken because the person that she's in love with suddenly disappears and she doesn't know how to exist anymore without that person. Um, but you don't have to do much with the sexuality there because everybody's, like, a kid in this story anyway. And I think that, you know, it, 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 it's a lot better for the movie to do it the way he handled it. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we'll get into another aspect of the movie. Well, that is very, very funny, or very sad, and perhaps now you have something to think about, or very problematic, and perhaps we have something to think about. But in any event, I'm sure you have some reaction to what you're listening to, so why not check us out on the social media? You can go to Instagram or Twitter, and find us at your pop filter. Email contacts at your pop filter. Hey everybody, keep watching them movies. How is Peter Weir playing with our expectations of genre as far as women's pictures go, which is what they used to call them in classic Hollywood uh, movies about women for women? Um, and then we'll go further to say mystery movies, horror movies, etc. So there's a concept called femme noir that was created in the 40s and 50s where it was uh, noirs that were about women and somehow uh, created by or uh, produced by or written by women as well. And that's when you started to see more female main characters. Now, a lot of these main characters were homemakers. They were wives. They were little girls and they were princesses waiting to be married off to some random strange man. And... But what I find interesting is that this film is a mystery. It's a thriller, is how I would sort of describe the genre here. And that was never marketed to women, but audiences within the 60s, 70s, and 80s, female audiences loved drama. They loved crime thrillers. They funded crime thrillers and why they were in like the pictures all the time, why they could go to the cinema and see them, because women were just... Uh, love them. And it was interesting for me to see how we're used both like the traditional sort of uh, younger girl like main characters who were generally seen as harmless or they're usually the object of male affection during this time period and incorporating them into a thriller which that you know you didn't really see too many women uh, wrapped up in thrillers here uh, and having that sort of juxtaposition of the expectations of what the genre genre would bring um, in, in this film. There was that thing that went on then that's still going on now where if there was a big hit, let's say a, mo- a mystery movie about a woman, uh, it maybe even made by women, was a big hit with women, 
then you just say, oh, that was a one-off. That was, yep. you know, that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't know how that happened. Let's literally never try it again. And so then oh, we, yeah. we just have this very spotted history with this kind of stuff. How, if you saw a trailer for this movie, though, it would seem like the least thrilling thriller of all time. And yet it is a thriller. How? How does he do it? Well, that's, I think, part of the, the marrying of the genres, because part of the way in which it sort of departs from being a thriller sometimes is that there's this weird sort of like lack of sticking with trying to figure out what happened to these girls. And what happens is the farther away that most people get from the incident, the less they think about it. And so it's this weird mix where most people just go back to living their normal lives and so the way that both weir and uh lindsay who wrote the book uh the way she was able to do that is it sometimes becomes almost like a jane austen book for a while it's just it's about people at garden parties it's about people at this finishing school and then it's like oh and by the way one of them just like got spat back out the portal and she's around again and then everybody has to confront the fact that like oh crap yeah we stopped thinking about that, but that thing seriously did happen. And then okay, so it becomes kind of a, like a thriller again. This is an obscure reference, or it's a tiny one, but it's, what you're saying, Greg, reminds me of the scene in Ghostbusters where Rick Moranis, fully possessed, runs up to a restaurant window and starts banging on it. And they all stop and say, that's the fucking craziest thing that we have ever seen. Uh-huh. And then 10 seconds later, they go directly back to eating. Like, we, <laughs> we can't actually deal with what happened, right? So we just have to go back to our normal lives. Yeah, like, either you're, when something unexplainable happens and somebody goes, you know, multiple somebodies go missing as a result of it, your options are to become obsessed with it and to go completely crazy being like, this can't be. How can someone be here one moment and then just not hear the next? Or your other option is to go do the, an equally crazy thing and be like, yep, sometimes people disappear. Okay, back to life. And most people choose to do the second, but a couple people just can't ever get over the fact that something really weird happened and they become obsessed with it forever. And Van, it's so interesting what you said about uh, like femme noir because the idea that somebody was had the bright idea to tap into like women loving you know noir stories well now we know like true crime podcast the world of podcasts yeah buoyed by, oh yeah yeah like it, it's all i'm one of them <laughs> yeah it's all women who want to hear about you know the, the the murder of the week uh and so yeah of course there is that built-in audience for it and that's just proof that this it, the marrying of these two concepts really is such a good marriage here of young women go missing and then also having the just like looking at the affairs of young women and 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 the the truth of going from you know a a young woman to an adult absolutely yeah you see there's i I just sort of think that you know if there's ever expectations placed upon one group of people that group of people is going to be more drawn towards uh film and media that subvert those expectations and i think you see this all kind of wrapped up in one and i loved how you said it was like jane austen-esque because that's what i was thinking as well i was thinking it's just women watching other women do women things uh which was uh, such a revolutionary idea at the time i uh I read an interview with Peter Weir who said he studied... And this is his second movie, you know, like... And his first one was, like, some B-car horror movie. I say that like that's a normal genre. Uh, <laughs> he, he studied this way, like, to create a pattern in the movie or to have this, like, uh, I don't know, reverberation that would manipulate people into constantly forgetting about the crime. Yeah. Like, I, I, want, it to, I want to write it and also edit it in such a way where it just feels like this pacing that constantly makes you forget. And that's such a dangerous idea. Like if you were a a studio exec, you'd be like, absolutely do not do that. You know, like that's going to ruin the entire thing. How, like how, what were other ways that he kept it, kept the movie afloat by making the mystery, not a mystery by keeping like making the thriller, not thrilling. I think by just having more mundane concerns, you know, come into into the world. And that is really how we go about forgetting is that the more mundane things in the world come and, and attract our attention. So we kind of get caught up in, oh, man, people are like dropping out of this school. And we spend a lot of time with Mrs. Appleyard and we get like, you know, oh, man, the, the administration of this school is difficult. Or we spend a little time with uh, the cop Bumfer 
And it's like, yeah, figuring this out is really like dragging this guy down. Or we spend time with Birdie uh, and what's the rich kid's name? Michael. Uh, and we're like, wait, are these guys vibing? What's going on here? And then it's only through that relationship are we kind of brought back into it because Michael wants to go back to The Rock. But it it does such a good job of mirroring what's going on in this universe, which is people are just deciding not to really think about this after the initial sensational news. And and it no longer has that like newness to it. People just get over it and they don't want to think about it anymore. They realize life goes on and they don't know how to cope with that. So they just, yeah. And what else can you say about it after like, yeah, it's crazy. Three of them just disappeared. I mean, I watched this entire country uh, find out that there's life on other planets and then not give a fuck within 12 hours. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But, like, and then, yeah. The UFO report? Yeah, your own personal stuff. Like, these girls disappeared, but I just got this new video game I'm excited about. And eventually one will outweigh the other. The other thing, too, is that that pattern, that reverberation that he set in, it changes your expectations almost immediately of what this movie is going to deliver. And if it works, if it gets you on its wavelength, then you're you're fine with watching all the things that Greg just listed. You know, you're like, oh, this is not um, an Alex Cross movie or a David Fincher procedural. You know, this is just it's it's like splice of life. It's almost like Richard Linklater, but we have this possible portal in the in the mountain. You know, you get to have all those things at once, which is crazy. The other thing that genres always come down to is music there's a lot going on with the music in this movie when does it work how does it work like somebody describe the music to me and then are there times where the music might be a bit too much it's a low warbling background ambiance that's when that it works just kind of swells yes right like when yeah. the nature like and the scenic like just the girls going about their daily lives but it's just the ominous music in the background that's when it's good there's in the book it's always described as that like hanging rock is kind of like a presence for everybody even when they're not like near it and that that warbling does a good job of that and like i i think that even if you if even if no one tells you there's a portal in this story i think you kind of know that there is and that that warbling is kind of the sound that it makes that yeah i mean it's there's like a magnetic pull it stops watches yeah. and so it's halfway between music and like sci-fi yeah basically. And so I think that definitely works. That's like, I wish that had kind of been all of the music, but then it was 75. So there was like these like little pin whistles, like, like, like piccolos, that part of the soundtrack I hated. But then on top of that, there was a very seventies, like kind of like rock opera, like big grand piano and like super dramatic soundtrack and i like that one too so there's like three or four different kind of soundtracks for this and some of them work some of them don't but i think having a mix helps you like sort of jump from genre to genre and keeps the keeps the viewer sort of aware of what level of reality we're in at any one time like are we thinking about hanging rock that's the warble are we thinking about saving the girls that's the dramatic music are the girls gonna disappear soon that's like the weird whistly stuff and it's all everything to me about this movie is like brings up the word classical you know and classical music classic music has those sort of like motifs that come in and out just like the music in here does but it also it's less catchy it's it's less worried about like do we have a hook I mean, you know, like this this movie is not worried about its hook. The story basically is what would happen if in a Jane Austen book a black hole opened up. And I think that the music does a really good job of capturing all those different vibes at the same time. Okay, let's take one last break and when we come back, let's talk about that ending. Hola, Felterinos. I just wanted to interrupt real briefly and say thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. If you want to support us a little more directly, you can go to patreon.com slash yourpopfilter. There, depending on what tier you pick, $1 a month, $5 a month. If you're crazy, anything more than $5 a month, don't do that. You can get extra content. There's extra shows, extra series, uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, you could pay for ryan to draw you a picture Uh, i can write you a poem you can get the shirts off our very own backs all of that and so much more over at patreon.com slash your pop filter 
While you're on the internet, you should check out Shady Monk. He does all the tunes you've been listening to. He's on Bandcamp, he's on Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, wherever kids get their music these days that I'm too old to know. Shady Monk lives there. Uh, you can probably follow him on Twitter and Instagram as well. That's Shady Monk. Wherever you get music, check him out. The ending is such a vital part of this movie. Um, or maybe the lack thereof is sort of a vital part. Uh, the central question of what exactly happens at Hanging Rock is never resolved. How did this leave you as a viewer? Greg, you knew about the reputation. You knew, maybe you and I went in knowing that, like, the mystery is a mystery. Um, audiences in 1975 did not know that, and Van did not know that. And they were upset. Van, were you upset? I wasn't upset. I got frustrated. I would say, end of the first act, into the second act. I was just like, okay, so this is a crime drama. We need to be moving forward, or we're not going to get anywhere. And in the Where last is Ice-T? Why is Ice-T not asking Exactly, asking exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm used to SVU for sure and, law, like, you know, the original Law & Order franchise. So I was ready for the next thing to come up, and it just didn't. And then I stopped caring by the end of it, and I, I think I became okay with... I, I think I realized along the way, oh, they're just not going to tell us, uh, and I, I, I was all right with that. I think I got the gist, based on what I heard on Siskel and Ebert, that there was going to probably be more questions than answers. And I would say within the first, like, 20 minutes of the movie, you can tell it's so weird and ethereal. If you think that you're going to get answers in this movie, then you're just not watching it correctly. Like, it's obviously... And I think also, what answer is satisfying? When will yeah. you ever be it's done? It's not a portal with people turning into crabs, I will tell you that. Yeah, right? Like that. There's no and good I, answer. Yeah, exactly. It's But the mystery is what's interesting. The mystery and watching people react to it, because that's what the movie is about. It's about how people react to something like this. And so that's the part that, that it draws you to it. But you're always going to, when you leave something open-ended, you're always going to have audience members who are just like, no, I don't like that. You have to tell me what happened. I read a story about a critic screening, and one of the critics at the end... Um, threw his cup of coffee at the screen and said that it's, this is bullshit that we didn't get it answered. Uh, he needs to calm down. Sort of. Yeah. A, well, first, yeah, coffee wasn't $5 a cup back then, so it was fine. But uh, <laughs> all he almost reacted like the girls did when uh, yeah. Irma was coming back to say goodbye and she didn't have any answers for them e- either. And if I was Peter Weir hearing this coffee throwing story, I'd be like, yeah, I did it, bitches. Like, this is the exact response I wanted for you and you fell directly into my trap. Well, think of like, you know, what's gone on with like COVID and people's reaction to the experts, the quote experts mm-hmm. about COVID. COVID something has only existed for such a short time. And the experts are like, okay, our new understanding means this. And people get furious with them. Like, why can't you just tell me what I need to do? Why do you keep switching the guidance? Because we're just studying this thing. We don't know how it works. But that when people can't give you an answer, you get pissed off with them. And that's exactly what happens when... uh Irma comes back is she has nothing for them. She can't tell them why she came back and she can't tell them why it's her and not Miranda. Miranda is the star of the school. Everybody loves Miranda. She's the center of the universe. If anyone's going to come back, it has to be Miranda. It can't be randomly one of the other girls. And the fact that one of them pops back up and she has nothing to say she either won't say what happened or can't remember or just can't articulate it. And honestly, it doesn't even give an indication of which of those things it is. When she thinks about it, she breaks down crying. So she is upset by it, but she can't say anything about it. And then that trans like that transplants her in people's minds from being a victim of it to being some sort of like to being in on it or something. Yeah, like, and they get so upset with her. You're pu- we don't know how, but you're pulling our strings. You know, and yeah. that, that's the it's, the doctor. You are the one denying us. You know what the answer is, even if you can't access it, and you won't tell us what it is. And we're pissed off, and so the audience feels that too. Like movie, you know. And the the truth of the matter is, sometimes as an artist, you create something and you don't know its parameters. Mm-hmm. You don't know what the answer is. Now, it it turns out that she did have an idea of what happened, but sometimes you can't say what it is because if you're trying to have there be some weird, some weird spatial anomaly that nobody's ever heard of, well then obviously you can't, you can't define it fully because it's not something that you know, it's not something that humans can even fathom. So the artist herself can't fathom it. Peter Weir himself can't fathom it. Yeah. I mean, looking back at like old texts, even from the thirties and forties, like Agatha Christie as well, like her mysteries, no matter how intense and how crazy 
always had a very logical like method yeah. about like Sherlock Holmes you, you always there's a logic to getting to the end and there is always an answer because you start out with a question you know you're going to get an answer by the end of the book and I feel like with this we just decided no you're not going to get it he cut like seven minutes of the film out I think from what I remember yeah um, just reading up he was about like it. I want a director's cut I want the I want the weird cut I'm going to take shit out and that is unheard of that is unheard of um the other thing too with even the greats like Christie or Doyle rely and definitely the less greats as we get into the seventies and eighties as far as mysteries go, they rely on this, you know, like, oh, I I preternaturally saw this thing or I uh accidentally, you know, coincidentally saw this thing that solves the mystery. And that's part of what leaves it so unsatisfying. Like you have to have something like that in there with mysteries like this because the vast majority of mysteries never get solved or detective cases or whatever to this is so much more realistic if not philosophical so much more realistic about what happens when people go missing you know yeah, I mean, that's why everyone's heard of John Benet Ramsey and all of these unsaved, unsolved cases and you know not as much the solved ones yeah I mean the, the, the story of someone goes missing and nobody ever knows what happened that is a common story. It's a lot more rare to come in and be able to like definitively say, hey, this is what happened. And now we, we live in an era where we get a lot of that because DNA evidence uh, can really do a good job of, of pointing the finger at, at someone who's guilty. Um, and that's, you know, we've had big case breakthroughs just because of like uh, uh, Ancestry.com or, you know, like the the my, what is it? My 23andMe. 23 and me there you go yeah um but for the vast history of humankind when there's a crime there's almost no way to tell to tell what what happened here not you know? that we're like, saying that people should go commit crimes but you probably no, won't get caught but but if it's a cool enough crime to where everybody hears about it i don't know that's that's something it's wrong still but it's a something i feel like you could have gotten away with a lot more like pre-1980 but post-1980 too many security cameras too many new like dna you know systems and all that but in 1900 man go crazy oh yeah go crazy i mean the guy investigating the case is like his last name is bumfer <laughs> Like, I mean, and he like he's basically asking his wife what the scuttlebutt is so that he can maybe crack the case that way. He's, what are people saying out there anyway? We didn't talk a lot about the two dudes in the movie, but um, he asked the younger, the blonde of the two dudes, um, did you do this? And he's like, nope. And he's like, all right, good enough for me. And the guy's like, did I swear to God, I didn't. And he was like, no, it's fine. I, I get it. And honestly, like, I believe when, you. This, when this still felt more like a detective story, I was like, okay, well, that guy did it, obviously. Like, he's like, then I saw three girls, four girls, three girls, whatever. <laughs> and then he just seems so flustered. He's like, okay, this guy's guilty. He he knows something. I'm going to write down 3.5 and we'll call it a day. Okay, good. <laughs> um, there's one character that we really didn't talk about enough who I think is sort of, I don't know, like a representative of the entire movie. It's Mrs. Appleyard. Oh, yeah. Um, This lady starts off as sort of like typical... Victorian era, 1900, girl school, you know, marm, right? Uh, then she goes a little bit off the rocker. Uh, what What do you guys make of this person? Is she reacting? Is she going along with the movie? Is she going against the movie? How did you feel about Mrs. Appleyard? She turns herself into royalty by the end of it. I'm just remembering the dinner scene where she's... Um, talking with Miss McCraw, was it? And she's just got this big old get-up. Her hair is bigger than ever. And it's <laughs> it's really interesting how she... I, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I really didn't know what to make of her at first because I, I was expecting like her to end up the villain, villain, which she is, but I just not in the way that she transformed from beginning to end of the movie. I will say that as somebody who pays into a homeowner's association, uh, it doesn't matter how small the group of people is. If you're at the top, you will go insane. You will just, okay. like, if you're in charge, you will just absolutely go crazy. And and also, you know, she is, she's almost like sort of a, a ghost in a way in that she, you know, if, if, the, if the central question of the movie is like, what happens to these young women, not just the ones who disappear, but all young women, what happens to them? Uh, then part of the answer might be some of them become Mrs. Appleyard. She outlives her husband. Her duty was to be a wife and she had this period where she was like living the perfect version of 
the life that society had allowed for her. But then this dude dies and it's like, well, now what can I, now what can I do? And she's got like three options. And one of them is open up a school, even if she's totally ill suited to it, but there's not a lot of stuff that she can do. And then she spends all her time looking backwards into the past into when the very small sliver of time where she was able to do exactly what society wanted and to still be happy at the same time. Now she is stuck in a world where she had, she can do what society wants, but it's going to make her so freaking miserable. Yeah, she doesn't want to like live with these girls. She doesn't care for them. Do you know what it and is? That's too? totally understandable. What it is, is this basically explains boomer is, is that she has one skill set and that's belligerently following rules. And if people grow or if society changes, that takes away your skill set or even worse than that sort of makes it seem like you were wasting your time in the past and that makes people absolutely incensed i mean if part of your training as a girl was you were told when you could take off your gloves and if you were constantly made to feel like your only role was to land a husband i could definitely see becoming embittered later in life when you are then told okay, now you have to fend for yourself. And you're like, well, I guess I could tell the girl, I could be the one who tells the girls they can't take their gloves off until they get through town. Otherwise, like, what's the thing I can do? I can't go open a business, any other type of business. I can't go enter into politics. Like, I either can die or get sauced up, which she starts doing when things fall, fall apart, or I can open this shitty school in this shitty place. And I that sucks too, but it's something and I have to do something. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the options at the time for divorced or not divorced, of course not. They they couldn't get divorced. Um, That's disgusting. Women. You wouldn't even yeah. say that word. Yeah, of course. Um, so I feel like the only options at the time was go none or go home. Like there's nothing yeah. else for you. And what she doesn't understand or what she does, but she's trying to fight against. And I think that every generation goes through this is that nature finds a way. You can't stop the volcano. You can't put a cap on the coke bottle with the mentos in it like these girls if you it, like the repression only lasts so long before it either they either bust out of it and become normal people or they just explode into a portal <laughs> all right we're gonna take a break and when we come back we're gonna give this movie some awards we have three moodies to give out the first one we're gonna start with you greg is cringiest moment okay now did this win any oscars ryan I actually don't think so. No. I don't think it was a big deal until I, much no, later. I don't think it did. Uh, yeah, this is one of the, like this is a movie maker's movie. You could see, I feel like you could see a lot of like people uh, like influences um, on 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 modern movies in this one. But I'm supposed to pick uh, cringiest moment. You know the 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 movie does mostly okay. I want to say except uh, this is supposed to be like the story of all of Australia, and there is one native person in it uh there's one uh, uh, aboriginal person in it and he's referred to as an abo by um by one of the guys and so that i thought was like he barely even made it into the movie and then he was kind of uh something like sideways was said about him was abo the band that wrote mamma mia no. Keep, keep, keep going. You can keep going, sorry. Uh, but yeah, so that 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 was my that was my cringy moment. Uh, you know when I do these shows with you, Greg, I also take note of the POC. And I think that this is very purposeful. I think that their left is a mystery as well. Because I think Weir is leading you into thinking, oh, I bet it was those aboriginals. You know, like, yeah. I think that it's purposeful to leave them out. So they're part of the mystery as well. Which is not an excuse. That's but, gross too. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the, the guy is like, is dressed in such an interesting, like, garb. I, I I think that there's like a there's an interest there. Like if you're telling the story of Australia, why not tell the story of those people? And um, it just like it felt like almost yeah emphasizing that that they weren't being included. But yeah, I think that I don't know. I think that all Australian stories, in a way, are sort of colonial stories. You know, so this this sort of was like, look what happens when we take this land over. The land is going to take it back, and it does. It doesn't back it up. But Van, what was cringiest moment for you? Mine was a technical note. Right before that group of girls goes into like the cliffs for the very first time, there was just a lot of overlays with just women's faces and rocks <laughs> and birds. And I just thought, cut you, there could have been something better done there. I get you're trying to have this like dreamy sort of like dreamscape aspect to this, uh, and I just I thought that was 
just I would say overdone, but this is probably one of the first art house just annoying. This is probably very uh, influential, influential yeah. to the things yeah. that annoy you now. Uh, my cringiest yes. moment is uh, it's most often with the two guys when they're sitting around drinking, talking about or not talking about how the girls disappeared. Um, they just don't do anything about the bugs on them, and yeah. that freaks me out. Like, just buy like a lantern or something, like a bug zapper. Uh, great. Yeah, buy a lantern and okay, a bug zapper in 1900. Yeah. Well, go through the portal, become a crab. The portal's right there. It's take it back. It's oh, half a day's right, journey right, to the mistake. portal. You just make sure you get there straight up noon. Uh, we'll give that one to Greg. Uh, Van director's signature moment. Peter Weir. Uh, I liked the at the very beginning. You see him doing a lot of montages of showing everyday life in. I reference Dead Poets again. So I really enjoyed just seeing the girls in their everyday lives, just in the quick snapshots. I thought that was um, very reminiscent of Peter Weir. And you know, I didn't watch this movie a second time, but you know that when you watch it a second time, you're like, oh, there's the whole movie played out in that scene. Oh, this is yeah. this is developing everything I should have been paying attention to. Greg, director signature? Uh, for me, when I think Peter Weir, I think of Master and Commander. Uh, everybody agrees Master and Commander is a great movie. I, I, why did we only get one of those? Come on, more Master and Commanders. But part of what Master and Commander does so well is it talks about not necessarily the homosexual relationship between its its two main male leads, um, Captain uh, Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin. In Damn, Master you do love that movie, I, dude. I've read I've read some of the books too, um, but it certainly has like there's a homoerotic quality to their love for each other. They're like basically a same sex married couple um and it's just you don't ever see them have sex but like they function as a married couple and i felt very much that vibe coming off michael and birdie uh, and the one particular shot i would give it to is michael's like i'm gonna go back out on to, to hang and rock and birdie's like i just don't think about things so try not to worry about it and then the next morning birdie comes out and michael's in this really jaunty little hat and like a capelet over his shoulder and birdie comes out and they make eye contact and the eye contact is so it's romantic they're just like very very they're kind of glowing with each other and i just without it being like a super sexual thing there's obviously two men in love and i just that that one moment i thought was like so sweet between those guys and it was very master and commander to me do you know how I take that? I take that as uh, love is not important to Peter Weir, the director, but it's important to the person. So even though he doesn't focus on it, it just comes out of him. Yeah. You know, he's just beaming with it. Uh, my director signature was, I think he does this incredible job. And this is, you know, due to the list of movies that we've gone over a couple times of putting uh, a stranger in a strange land, you know, uh, putting someone who doesn't belong and then, but not hanging a lantern on it. Like not... Uh, doing these, you know, like shooting it or having the dialogue in such a way where, like, isn't this weird that we're here? Um, I don't know. I didn't notice for a long time that it is weird for these girls to be out in the wilderness until it was far too late, you know. And I think that happens uh, obviously in Witness, but definitely in Truman Show. Uh, we'll give that one to Van. I haven't watched it a second time, but when I do, I will more emphatically give that to you. The final award is pound for pound performance. Definitely an ensemble piece. Yeah. Greg, who, stu- who stood out to you? Uh, it would be too cliche to say the hanging rock. I mean, it's that's the titular, right? But obviously a solid performance there. Uh, but for me, it is the actress that played Sarah, Margaret Nelson. Um there, there's so much kind of like out there weird acting in this that I really, really like. But um, she has such a grounded, centered performance as somebody who just lost the love of their life. Like to be that age and to be in love and to have that person just disappear, like so devastating. And to watch that go through her in waves and to just watch how like, if you're obsessed with a missing girl, there's a missing girl right here. It's her. She's like she's disappearing oh, wow. from the world right now and nobody cares because you can see her, but she's obviously drifting away from everybody. Somebody go save her. She's the one that's right here. And I think that like it's the it, it, so much of it is the performance of Margaret Nelson that really just like is so stark and real. Well, give him the re- uh, the award like right now because I <laughs> couldn't have stated that any better. Uh, There's I, a missing girl Sarah. right here, yeah. Van. You're not <laughs> yes. going to beat that. 
No, I really can't. No, I, I would have gone with Margaret Nelson as Sarah, but otherwise Rachel Roberts as Mrs. Appleyard. Yeah. I thought did great. I enjoyed her performance a lot, and I believed her very much. But no, absolutely, this award <laughs> goes to Margaret Nelson. Uh, what was Appleyard's name? Like, it was uh, Rachel Roberts. Yeah. Rachel Roberts does such a good job of walking that balance beam of, like, I'm oh, not yeah. crazy, you're crazy, you know, until the very end. Um, I'm going to, like, I guess this is pointless because Greg just got the award, but yes. uh, I'm going to give it to Jackie Weaver, who plays, I think, Minnie, uh, the French maid yeah. lady, who's just always walking into rooms going like, what the hell is going yeah. on here? And it's not <laughs> even just about, like, portals and mountains. It's, like, literally every time anything is, something's crazy, she comes in and she's like, do you guys see how you're acting right now? Um you know, a little dumb, a little comedic relief, but still, uh, I thought what the mo- exactly what the movie needed for all of those moments. But I guess Greg takes it down. Uh, guys, Picnic at Hanging Rock is not in the bracket, but do you kind of wish it was? I, You know, now that we have done the show about it, I guess I, I wish that it could be in contention. But I'm just glad we got a chance to see it and talk about it. I think that there are definitely movies in the bracket that it could take. But it it doesn't fully feel like a winner to me. But it definitely was like deserving of at least a bonus show. Here's, I think the reason that like it suckered us in, right? Like I'm really glad that it's the three of us for this show and not like plebeians like Mike. Is yeah. that it's such such an open text. Like we could probably do another hour easily. And I think that people forget that when they hear foreign film, they hear foreign language film. Yeah, dang. And this is in English, but it's definitely foreign because it does allow itself to be an open text. Even like even though 1975 was this cultural revolution and movies were changing so hardcore, a lot of the movies, the American movies that we watch for 1975 are sort of open and shut. Yeah. You know, and this movie just has so many paths that you can take as far as thinking about it and talking about it. Van, did you do you agree with that? You know, I'm going to say something I thought I'd never say, but I rewatched at least half of Nashville and I was oh, sort of yeah. thinking about uh the rewatchability of this film and I liked it, I enjoyed it. Now that I gave Nashville a second watch, now that cuz I was kind of feeling the same like slice of life, that same kind of just shot and story that sort of like structure there so i but i really don't think it could measure up because now i am learning more about nashville and all that so i just don't think it would make it into the top movies if i because i've only had like a sample of what 1975 has to offer so i don't think it would be up there in the running but i did very much enjoy it yeah i just uh it's so so hard especially because of where we were born in the movies that we grew up on to you know i've seen a million movies from the 70s and to just be like, yeah, I'm going to sit down and watch this plotless movie. It's still so hard. You know, it's still so hard to like, just understand that it's not going to be story fed to you. But I think this movie crushes it. And it's like jazz. It like basically is like, man, we're not showing you what kind of crazy stuff is going on. But can't you just imagine what kind of crazy stuff might be going on? Yeah. And it's, so it's like, it's kind of like it puts it on you to imagine <laughs> what interesting things are happening. That's a bold choice. And if you listen to jazz and you wonder what, crazy stuff is going on listen to 90s pop punk i think that answers all the questions for you usually i think the crazy thing is just it's just a saxophone <laughs> you're just hearing a saxophone it's an it's a it's a bad sounding instrument it's not that crazy it's just it's not good it's not musical no like, I don't, you just, and what you you imagine what if i were not, i like a good saxophone what if i were not here that's an oxymoron <laughs> the best, oh come on the best saxophone i've ever heard is when i saw a saxophone player with the saxophone in his case, fall down the stairs. And I was just, yeah, that's what I like to hear. You are cruel. You are mean. Saxophone players, get out of here. You're not musicians. Um, You're going to lose listeners. We have uh, so much to do left in 1975. We've got uh, One Flu coming up. We've got uh, Shampoo coming up. We've got Solo coming up. Our Solo show has still not come out. Um, So there's still a lot to go. But... That was Picnic at Hanging Rock. Van, tell us where we can find you. Um, you can find me at s.v.mb on Instagram, but that's all I've got to plug for today. And Greg? I'm at Pensive Gorilla on Twitter, or you can find me sitting in the office in my house. <laughs> like right now? 
I honestly, so much of the time, Ryan, so much of the time, right in this same room. And what is that address? No. One, two, three, real street, Anytown, oh. USA. That is Greg's address for Greg. I am Van. <laughs> for Van, I am Ryan. For Greg, I am also Ryan. Thank you so much for listening and keep watching them movies.